Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 238. Without Julius here, I can't come up with something clever. Hey, listeners, welcome back. That's right, there is no Julius here, so bad jokes are on me here. So on with today's show, which is an interview. Hi everyone, today I am talking to Ellie. He is the designer of a game called World Breakers, the advent of the Connect. I got it right because it's the second time we do this. <laughs> <laughs> Hi Albert, thank you for having me on the, uh, on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, glad to talk to you. you. You've been working on this game and it is self-published from what I can tell. And it is a, it's a two-player card game. To me, it reminds me of Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. But you have developed a... You're developing a solo campaign for it also, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's correct. So we want to talk to you about that. Yeah. So so can you tell us about the game in general, what the theme is and all that? Yeah, of course. Worldbreakers is set in an alternate 13th century Asia. And mm-hmm. the idea is that humanity found a substance called Mythium. People that use Mythium find that it amplifies their natural abilities. So... Uh, merchants become slicker and artists create their magnum opus. Um, and um, this creates a divergence from our history where the Mongol horde is reuniting under Kutulun, who is a Mongol princess. And she's unifying all of the different uh, tribes of the Mongols. And she's planning to finish the conquests that were started by the great Chinggis Khan by moving with all of these armies west. Okay, is so so it's based on history, and then like you said, it deviates. It is a uh, what was her name again? Is she Kutulun? Is she a historical character, or did you make that up? Yes, so Kutulun is a historic character, okay. and uh, she is documented in um, in Marco Polo's travels and in other historical records. She she was a pretty incredible. She was a bona fide warrior princess. Oh, okay. Um, uh, that uh, that lived in the 13th century. There's other characters from our history as well. Notably, there is Marco Polo, mm-hmm. who is one of the characters. And um, there's also a fictional element. Uh, there is a society of uh, women engineers called the Muhandasat that live in the mountains of Persia and are building a utopian society. So it's a blend of historical and fictional. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I realized it was quite the historical, that, that many elements in there. So... So you've told us about the theme, though. How does the game work mechanically? What what are we doing? I already mentioned it's a, a two-player sort of PvP kind of game. Yeah. Uh, Worldbreakers is a two-player card game. And um, you are trying to control the board using followers. And as you pointed out, very similar to creatures in Magic the Gathering. The big divergence is that instead of trying to kill your opponent, you're trying to build yourself up instead. So you have special cards called locations. And for those in the audience who played Android Netrunner, they're very similar to agendas. You play these locations on the board, and as long as you can defend them, they're going to give you the power, the points that you need to win the game. So you're trying to wrestle control of the board from your opponent, all the while finding the timing windows to play the locations and and gain points. In parallel to all this, action alternates very quickly between the two players. So you have one action, 
and then your opponent can respond. You have one action, your opponent can respond, and so on. In fact, the um, the economy, the engine, comes from Netrunner and from Arkham Horror uh, LCG. So the mm-hmm. same way that in Arkham Horror, you start the turn by drawing a card and gaining $1, and then you have three actions. In Worldbreakers, you have four actions, except they alternate with your opponent. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. I like when the actions alternate and you just do one thing. It makes the game feel faster, and, and, and you're more involved with it. I, just, I was playing something the other day from GMT Games, uh, Space Corp, it's called. And in that game, I was playing solo. And you take an action, you play one card, and then the AI takes an action and plays one card. And it was, it was so fast. It, it felt really satisfying the way I liked that. I really liked that idea. Yeah. And um, if you play the solo mode on Fields of Arl or on Underwater Cities, it's similar to that as well, where okay. each player takes one action and then their opponent and so on. So that mechanic is very common in Wingspan, in worker placement games. Uh, that was my mm-hmm. inspiration for that. Oh, okay, cool. So, so you mentioned the these world breakers. These are people that are heroic, and and you're taking on the persona of a world breaker in the game. How and the game brings a certain number of them in in there already, right? Yeah, that's correct. The world breakers are very similar to investigators from Arkham Horror LCG. At the beginning of the game, you choose one of them, and they give you a special ability, and they also give you a starting resource. Um, the game has four different guilds. And you can gain standing with these guilds. The more standing you have, the stronger the cards you can play. Each wallbreaker gives you a standing with a particular guild. Um, the card, the base game is going to come with four wallbreakers, one for each one of the four guilds. Three of them are based on historical characters. One of them is fictional. And who knows? If the game is successful, I would love to publish more of them. Okay, I like how you compared it to the to Arkham Horror and Investigator because. It's nothing like that, the game is, but immediately I knew exactly what you're talking about. Very made it very clear. Okay. Um Yeah. And you, sorry oh, for interrupting. On. At that point, it's really important for me to clarify that I didn't invent anything new. I think inventing new stuff in board gaming <laughs> is incredibly difficult right now. Mm-hmm. I borrowed mm-hmm. from all the games I love and created something new out of them. Right. Th- that is so much of what happens with games, too, I think, which is neat. There's all these different pieces, and people find new and interesting ways to combine them. Not just the mechanics, but the different themes and whatnot. And, and come up with really cool new ideas that, that feel super different. Uh, so you mentioned the World Breakers are they already sort of associated with one of the guilds and that they start stronger with that one, I guess. But you're not limited to just using that one guild. When you're playing, you could actually take advantage of all four of the guilds. Right, because you're getting resources from them. Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, as the game was developing, in the initial versions of the game, the guild system was very rigid. So Mm -hmm. it was difficult to branch to different guilds as the game progressed. And we kept revising it and making it easier and easier. One of my concerns is that the game degenerates to everyone plays the strongest card from every guild. But even when we loosened the this, this system as much as we can, people are still sticking to one or two guilds in a particular deck, but they have the option of branching to more than that if they choose. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one of the it's one of the knobs that I've been tweaking most aggressively so that mm-hmm. players can build the deck that they want to build and play it and have fun. Yep. That, that, that is so hard to do because it, it's just natural to want to min-max your deck or whatever to 
to be able to beat the game, right? So nobody's going to say, I'm going to try and make it weaker and see if it's harder for me by getting more thematic cards. I mean, I guess some people do that sometimes, but even then, you make your thematic deck and you say, okay, now I want to make it powerful. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And, it's, part and of um, it's always a balancing between flexible and powerful. And I think for now, we're in a pretty sweet spot in that regard. But nice. there was a lot of playtesting to bring us to this point. Nice, okay. How long have you been working on this game? Depending on how you count, <laughs> I um, I have notes going back to 2016. Wow, okay. And, um, but the game in 2016 was very different from what it is now. Um, the game in 2016 was much more of a reboot of Netrunner. And it, I've been iterating on these ideas. The big breakthrough came about eight months ago, where... Hmm. I shifted my attention from rebooting Netrunner to creating something from scratch and just keeping the things I love about these games and trying to distill the essence out of them. Um, so the big breakthrough came in May, but again, the notes go back years. Mm, okay. Now, when you say Netrunners, I know there's an older version of Netrunners from way back, and then there's a Fantasy Flight Netrunners. Which one are you talking about? Or are they the same? I don't know. I've heard there's of actually, I don't know the difference. There's actually a third version as well. So oh. Netrunner was released by Richard Garfield back in 1994. Mm-hmm. Then Fantasy Flight rebooted it in 2012. But then they lost the license, so they couldn't print it anymore. A fan-made organization called Nisei uh, took the game, and now they're publishing it. And, oh, um, wow, okay. Yeah, they even had a booth in Pax Unplugged where they were selling product. Um, they had people from Shut Up and Sit Down play the game. It was pretty cool. Wow, okay. Um, so the game keeps going through different iterations. My starting point was the Fantasy Flight version. That was That's the one I'm most familiar with. Although I do keep up to date with, with Nisei's work because it's brilliant. Like It's a bunch of volunteers keeping the game alive with thousands of players and new expansions. It's pretty cool to see. Wow, okay. That's, that is pretty cool. I hadn't heard about that. That's interesting. And that is not a solo-friendly game necessarily, is it? Right. It's not. Um, there is a bot online where you play against an AI, but okay. I wouldn't call it solo in the traditional sense. That's more mm-hmm. of a video game implementation, I would say. Okay. Um, but yeah, I actually spoke to a couple of Netrunner players about potential ideas for creating a solo version. To the best of my knowledge, none exists right now. It's a pure two-player game. It, it is hard to, to do that with a card game like that. It really is where, where it's designed to be player against player which brings us back to your game <laughs> yes <laughs> well let me see i've got my list of questions uh so i'm gonna skip that you know one thing i want to mention i every time i see the game's name i can't help but think it's word breakers not world breakers <laughs> i don't know how many times i've confused myself with this and and earlier i was typing and i typed word breakers again <laughs> i would love to see a word game with a, with a theme, a theme as rich as this one <laughs> yeah i will maybe this should be the spin-off <laughs> there you this go could yeah. totally work <laughs> do you play the twitter game um Mm-mm. what's it called it's it's a huge meme right now there's this game that you can play and then you post your results on twitter all of my twitter feed is filled with that so <laughs> and it's a word game oh okay no i have not tried. i don't really play too many oh, i've been starting to play games on bga but other than that, I don't really play money games on my phone. All right, so so back to to world world breakers, not word breakers. Um, mm-hmm. I really like how the locations work in it. 
um, and they're really interesting because you're mining them, and as you mine, what you gain gets different. It's sort of like you're digging to mine, getting deeper, and finding better things. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that whole uh, location? And you already kind of said it's sort of like Netrunner. Right. Uh, so the way locations work, these are cards in your deck, like any other card. You draw them, and you play them. Uh, you pay them. You play them using the Mythium, which is the game's currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so once the location is on the board, you load it up with stage counters. And as you pointed out, every location can have either two or three different stages. Um, and um, the location just sits there. It doesn't do anything until you spend another action developing the location. And when you do, you take up the, you take off the top counter and you resolve what that particular stage does. Okay. And so, so you're progressing and <laughs> you're getting your resources from location, not your, your mythium from location. So you can get anything from locations. Okay. Uh, some of them give you power that wins the game. Some of them gives you mythium and standing, which are the game's resources. They can draw you cards and they can also have all sorts of game effects. Um, they can discard your opponent's followers. They can give your followers power and health bonuses. They can allow you to attack more effectively than you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, no two locations in the game are alike. Nice. Okay. So you could put them, you're, when you're building your deck, you're going to put the locations that, that suit your play style and whatnot. That's pretty neat. Yeah, and there's you... aggressive locations. There's defensive locations. There are mm-hmm. utility locations. They're really... They have their own character and how they interact with the rest of the game. Okay. And so you also said you need the locations to win the game. Yeah. One of the tracks for winning the game is to play locations and develop them. So, for example, the biggest location in the game is called the Indigo Grotto. And if you manage to play it and develop all three locations, it's going to give you six points. You need 10 of them to win the game. So just that one card can take you 60% of the way. Mm-hmm. The tricky part is that as your locations sit on the board, your opponent can attack them. So mm-hmm. your opponent can recruit follower cards, and similarly to Magic, where they attack you, instead of lowering your health, they can damage your locations. So you can lose one of these stage counters. So if the Indigo Grotto could give you six points, but your opponent attacks it, it might only give you four points or even just one point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a balancing act, knowing when are you safe enough to play your locations and start developing them, all the while taking into consideration the different things your opponent might do. And like any card game, the more you know the card pool, the more you know the different types of decks, the better you can play the matchup. Yep, that makes sense. I think that's a neat idea how, how each time you, you um, use a location, you're getting something different. Cause, and then when your enemy attacks you, they remove one of the tokens. Because that means potentially you may really want to use that third ability, but you got to wait a long time. If your enemy attacks it to get your location out of the way, it might be helping you too. right? It's, and it's just the dynamic of how the game is playing out. And that's really neat. I like that. I like that there's a lot more opportunity there for interesting variations. I love that you said that because there's several locations where the second ability is so much stronger than the first one. And mm-hmm. typically, you would need to spend an action to get to that second ability. So we're seeing interesting games where one of the players plays one of these locations. Let's say the Luminous Lagoon. That's the name of the mm-hmm. location. 
the second ability in the Luminous Lagoon says that you destroy one of your opponent's followers. So <laughs> as you play it, there's this mini game of chicken where if your opponent attacks, you're going to use it to defeat one of their followers. But if you develop it, your opponent is going to attack and destroy your second stage and you won't be able to use that ability. Yep. So it's this game of chicken. Who's going who's gonna to blink first? And <laughs> okay. along with the alternate timing structure of the round, it leads to some pretty tense and, and interesting gameplay that okay. shifts very rapidly as the game progresses. Okay. See, that sounds really cool. Unfortunately, it's a two-player game. So let's talk about how, how the solo game works here, right? This is a, this is you've been developing a solo mode for this game, mm-hmm. um, and I know you've made one of the characters specifically Marco Polo to be used in the solo. Well, I don't know if it's specifically made to be, but in the solo game you use him. That's mm-hmm. the one. That's the world breaker you play. H- how does this solo game work? Can you tell us more about this? Sure. So before I talk about that, mm-hmm. I just want to talk about why does the game even have a solo mode? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because I presented it as a two-player game, and suddenly I'm saying, oh, there's a solo mode as well. And there were two reasons for that. Um, the first reason is that I started presenting the game, and many people said, oh, this is great, but I can't play with anyone, either because they're living somewhere isolated, or mm-hmm. because of COVID, they can't meet with other people. Um, one player told me that the nearest game store is 45 minutes drive, so they almost never go there. Yep. Um, so the idea with the solo mode is to just allow more people to play. I mean, developing a game is a lot of work, and I want more <laughs> people to have the opportunity to enjoy it and experience the world, experience the art, experience the mechanics. Um, the second reason is that the game has a pretty comprehensive story about how Marco Polo is stealing some stuff from the Mongol and he's running away from them and Kutulun captures him and then Marco Polo gets a third faction involved and there's there's this whole storyline behind the game and I communicate it through the cards which is the way Magic the Gathering does it, for example. But then it occurred mm-hmm. to me, wait, if you have a solo campaign, you can tell the story through the advancement of the campaign. So mm-hmm, similarly yeah. to something like Pandemic Legacy, or again, the Arkham Horror LCG or Lord of the Rings LCG, as you advance, you're going to see more parts of the plot. Um, so yeah, that was the two main reasons for even having a solo mode for the game. Okay, nice. So it sounds yeah, sounds like one, t- to, to get p- people to be able to play it who couldn't otherwise play it. And two, because of that story and being able to tell the story to more, well, again, to more people tell the story and to tell it in an interesting way that makes it part of the game. Yeah, Because exactly. when it's in the cards, it's just story that you read and you pick up little pieces here and there and you, in your head, you sort of make a disjointed story. But now you get to tell an actual narrative that has a beginning and an end, I guess. Yes. Okay. And as to how the game plays, I've chosen the approach of using an automaton. So... Mm-hmm. You're playing one world breakers, one of the world breakers, and in the example you specified, it's Marco Polo, and your opponent is playing another world breaker. Um, in the prototype right now, it's Kutulun, and the game plays for you, for the for the human player. The game is identical to how you would play versus a human opponent. Um, the the automaton is using a deck of order cards, and 
these cards have two sides to them. You do the top side, and then the following turn, you flip it, and you do the other side. So you can... You as the human player can infer the um, the uh, the um, structure of what the automaton is trying to do, but there are still surprises along the way because the order deck is not uniform. There's differences between the different cards. Gotcha. Okay. And it was really important for me that for you as the human player, the experience feels as close to a two-player game of Wallbreakers, and um, we're still playtesting it. I think we're in pretty good shape in that regard. Um, you pointed out fairly that currently on Tabletopia, and this is a good place to say that the game is available on Tabletopia for mm-hmm. free. Yep, people could try it out, test yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you can only play Marco Polo. Um, every There's going to be multiple different automata that come with the game. Okay. And when you choose to play against a particular wall breaker, they're going to have their own deck with their own orders. So when you play versus Kutulun, she does certain things. Basically, she's playing followers. She's trying to, to attack you and destroy your locations and gain power. Um, the next automaton I'm working on is going to be the Marco Polo automaton. And he's going to be much more defensive. He's going to slow you down. And he's going to play locations to his board and develop them for power. Okay. So, so so you said before that you're playing as Marco Polo, but now you're also building an automaton for him. Does that mean you can be playing as a different character now? Right. So when you play against Marco Polo, you can play as one of the other characters. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah. And right now the plan is to have different solo modes. The main one is going to be the campaign. Okay. And that's going to be a series of 10 games. You play them one after the other. And as you play the campaign, you can draft cards for your deck. So whenever you finish a game within the campaign, the instructions are going to tell you, okay, pick these five cards, pick these five cards. You can take one of them. Then you're going to lose one of them randomly. And now you can take another one of them. So you're okay. drafting your deck as you're going through the campaign. Um, and then, in addition to the campaign, there's going to be a sandbox mode where you're trying to race against the automaton and reach 10 power before the automaton does it. Um, and the sandbox mode is sort of is is going to have this endless mode where the more you play it, the more difficult it becomes. And there's ah, going to okay. be different modifiers that make the automaton stronger and stronger and makes the game challenging more and more challenging. Oh, nice. So it'll, so it'll stay a challenging game for a long time, hopefully. That's a cool idea. Because a lot of times you play a game solo, and what happens invariably is you get better and better, and the game doesn't advance with you. Right. I was speaking to a friend who loves Spirit Island, and he said that at this point, he typically plays with two adversaries, level six, wow. which, thinking about my experience with Spirit Island, <laughs> makes the game incredibly difficult. But that's the average game for him. And I think that a big part of Spirit Island's longevity is that the game came with this sliding scale Mm -hmm. where you can make the game more difficult. And thinking about a game like Pandemic, the box has four different difficulties. And that's it. Once you reach the, the top one, you master the game, you get bored with it. I think the more of a sliding scale and the more of like harder and harder difficulty levels you give the player, 
the more they're going to play the game because people want to defeat the challenges that you give them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you start it at the top already, they're never going to get there because they'll get tired of it too soon. Oh, this game's way too hard. I'm never going to play it anymore. Right. So, so you, I like that it works gradually. Yeah. And the only other way I can think of to, to add longevity to the game is to keep adding more and more content, content constantly, like the living card games, right? Where it doesn't necessarily get harder, but they add more scenarios, different stories to play. Right. Yeah. And as someone who is going to launch his first Kickstarter, um, I think that talking about expansions is a bit a bit too soon. So, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, yeah. if the game is successful and I have the privilege of publishing expansions, that would be amazing. But right now I'm thinking about a game, a board game, a box right. yeah, yeah. that people buy. And, you know, people are going to give me 30 bucks for that for that game, I want them to feel like they get 30 bucks worth out of it. And I want them to feel that they can play this as much as possible without buying expansions, without waiting for another Kickstarter campaign. That just seems unfair. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to cram that box with as much replayability as possible, whether it's oh, solo nice. or two-player. Gotcha. Okay. And so so the solo game you said is still a work in progress at this point. You, you've you got it started, you've got a foundation, and it sounds like you're feeling happy with it, but you're not done making it? Or do you think you already have like the first stage complete and now you're working on the other automatons? Um, so the, um, the first automaton is done, okay. and I'm now working on the second automaton, and the layout of the campaign is also done. And the kind of decisions you would have to do down the campaign, um, the story is fleshed out, and it's mostly written, but it still requires proofreading. So it's pretty mature. I would say that the version on Tabletopia is about thirty percent done, but the version we have internally is about sixty-five percent done. And I hope in a few weeks to have the second automaton on Tabletopia as well, and then we would be at like 80, 90%. Wow. Okay. Oh, very cool. So that's really exciting. So, and you're going to have it on Kickstarter. The plan is to have it on there soon, actually, isn't it? I mean, right. Relatively um, soon. <laughs> the Kickstarter is on, is starting on March 1st. So um, we're, I'm going to, if possible, I'm going to ask you to post a link to our website and mm-hmm. mailing list and all that. Um, the Kickstarter is going to be on March 1st. The plan is to have the free versions in parallel to the Kickstarter and afterwards as well. Okay. So anyone that is interested would have a chance to try the game before actually purchasing it. Um, and you can try the game right now on Tabletopia. Uh, both the two-player game and the two-player draft and the solo prototype, they're all there. Okay, yep. And so I did log on and I tried it a little bit too. Um, I found Tabletopia a confusing interface to use. But the, the game itself is it seemed really fully fleshed. All the cards there, they have art, they look really nice. So it's, it's playable, which is neat. Yeah, um, we're gonna be a bit weird in the Kickstarter sphere. When we reach when I reach the the campaign, all of the content is going to be done. So uh the game <laughs> has weird, yeah. sorry? That is weird, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The game has one hundred and twelve unique illustrations, they're all commissioned. Um the 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 rule book is done. The uh, most of the card text is done and play tested. We have four different game modes that come with the base game, and most of them are play tested. 
Uh, we're going to have the solo mode, which is going to have another deck. It's going to be about 40 additional cards without illustrations, just text. And they're going to be mostly done by the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, so yeah, the game is... We try to de-risk it as much as possible for backers. Um, there is so much risk with Kickstarter right now, mm-hmm. with, with COVID, with supply chains, with their announcement about blockchain that is scaring potential backers, yep. that I've really done everything in my ability to de-risk <laughs> this as much as possible. Yeah, and that, that's a challenge because nobody knows what's going to happen, right? You and nobody. So that It is so, so tricky. <laughs> Getting a Kickstarter going is so tricky. Um, and who who is the artist? Do you have a single artist, or, or how did that work for commissioning the art? Um, so there's a total of 14 artists that I commissioned. Ah, okay. And um, a few of them did a lot of the art. So Emilio Rodriguez, uh, he actually drew for Arkham Horror as well. Mm-hmm. And he's based in Spain. Uh, he drew about 20 different pieces. Um, another artist is Agustin Castro, and he's based in Argentina. Okay. Um, and he drew another 20 pieces. And um, there is a Mongolian illustrator. Uh, their name is Chinzu Chinzu. Okay. And most of the Mongolian characters in the game, uh, they're the one who drew them. Uh, so with another notable artist, uh, there is an Italian artist. Her name is Diletta. She contributed some of the characters. Um and uh, on top of these, there's another 10 artists, each of which contributed between one and four pieces. Mm, okay. Well, that's, that's neat. That's, it must be hard to coordinate all that, I imagine, and getting all that done. <laughs> yeah. When I started working on the game, I, I was looking for a part-time art director to help. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered that part-time art directors don't exist because... <laughs> They're just so busy. It's it's such a time-consuming and difficult job. So I did the, the natural thing and decided, oh, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. How hard could it be? Yeah. I can, I um, can imagine, yeah. Because there's a lot involved. With it. It's it's finding the artist and giving them the work to work on because you got to tell them what you want. I mean, I suppose you could say, here's the theme, do whatever you want, and, and that would work. But then it's very likely with 14 people your game's going to lack cohesion artistically because everybody's going to do something entirely different. So you got to coordinate all the style and review everything and plan what goes on which card and, and all that. That's going to be so much effort, I imagine. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting, but it'd be hard. <laughs> so as someone who's like in my background, I'm a, I'm a scientist and I'm a software engineer. <laughs> okay. So I loved it. It was fascinating work, as you pointed out. It was, it was like a board game, you know? <laughs> <laughs> funny. Finding all the pieces. But there was a lot to be done. As you pointed out, there's cohesion. Um, there's a visual language that I wanted to develop. So each one of the guilds has their own motifs and their own their mm-hmm. own color scheme. And there's historical accuracy. Um, I am I'm not Mongolian. I am not Arab. I am not Indian. And mm-hmm. almost all of the characters in the game come from these cultures. So it was critical in my mind to represent them correctly. Some of it was my own research, but that's never enough. A big part of it is working with people from these cultures. So mm-hmm. I have three different advisors on the Mongolian culture. I have an advisor on Arabian culture. I have an advisor on Indian culture. And it was taking every piece of art and running it through them and finding out what is wrong. So. 
for example, um, one of the guilds has a sub-theme of uh, Indian martial artists. And mm-hmm. it's a martial art called Kalari Payette. It's based in India, and it's it's millennia old, I believe. It's one of the first martial artists martial arts known to men. Okay. So I, I, I contacted a school of Kalari Payette in India, and every piece of Kalari Payette art had to go through the principle of that school. And he pointed out, oh, the clothing is all wrong. The, uh, the hairstyle is all wrong. Uh, these characters have mustaches. They're not supposed to have mustaches. So wow, okay. there was a lot of back and forth with different, um, different advisors. The main character is Kutulun. I actually have three different versions of Kutulun. Two of them had to be discarded, like outright discarded, because they had pretty gross, uh, pretty gross um, historical inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. So a big part of our direction for this game was being as historically and culturally accurate as possible. Wow. Okay, that's really cool. That that's super interesting. When when what I'm curious about when when the people submit the art for review. It's not a f- usually a final piece. I imagine it's like a draft where maybe it's a sketch or or partially colored in picture or something like that, I guess. Because I just imagine people making all this really complicated art and taking hours and hours and hours to draw each picture and then find, oh, no, it's no good. Throw it away. Do it again. <laughs> that would be so disheartening. So if you're curious about the commission process, mm-hmm. please check out the YouTube channel for Wall Breakers because okay. I have several videos that talk about commissioning. And if you like dogs and puppies, I have a 20-minute video about one of my favorite pieces. It's called Dog Tamer. And okay, it's yeah. full of dogs and the commission process for them. Oh, cool. Although I believe you're more of a cat person. I'm not well, sure. No, we've got dogs and cats here. <laughs> oh, you got dogs as well. Yes, we got dogs and um, chickens. But yes, you're right. Usually it's an iterative process. Okay. Um, there's sketch, and then there's increasing levels of resolution and colors on these sketches. And um, you go back to the artist with feedback. The The tricky part is that communication is one type of medium and art is a different type of medium. So mm-hmm. it's not always possible to communicate what you want to change. And also, on the other hand, I'm working with extremely talented artists and I want them to express their skill and their ability. So right. there always comes a point where I say, this is not what I wanted, but this is what it's going to be because this is what the art is true. And you know what? More often than not, it comes up even better than what I imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, the only places where I really, where I really like, the only deal breakers were stuff, were things that were just culturally inaccurate. Okay. But anything beyond that, I gave the artist as much flexibility as possible. Okay, that's cool. That's I imagine it's actually satisfying to give them all this information that may be relatively vague and get back something working through that process and finally saying, wow, this is exactly what I wanted, even though you didn't actually know exactly what you wanted at the beginning. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And especially with the um, the artists with whom I've been working the longest, like Emilio, like Agustin, at this point, I'm giving them pretty vague briefs. Mm-hmm. And that is by intention. The first line of the brief is, I don't know what this is going to be, but I think you, as the artist, who already drew 20 pieces of art for this game, I think you know what it's going to be. And That's funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that was incredibly successful, because I didn't have, like, so for example, Arkham Horror, or Lord of the Rings, 
both of these have a pretty heavy baggage of uh, of mm-hmm. visual history behind them. Um, if you're thinking about Lord of the Rings, you're expecting to see different things. With Wall Breakers, the only limitation was history. And there's a lot of history. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, so... When when I started working on the game, the exact geography was not was not clear. I only knew I want to go to Mongolia. Okay. Um, and as artists began to draw the game, I started finding the places that they drew. So they drew fictional places, and I found the historical equivalents for them. So, for example, a lot of the action happens in a bazaar, an Arabian bazaar, mm-hmm. and after the artist drew it. I found parallels in Tehran, um, which was in Persia back in the 13th century. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the major cities back at the day. And Tehran became one of the main uh, locales of the game. And several location cards are in Tehran. Oh, okay. That's cool. I, I, now I want to see the cards more and, and look at that because hearing all this makes it so much more interesting. I really always love knowing more about the backstory about a, a game and the design and whatnot and the history that goes into that. Yeah, it was it was loads of fun, and um, I commissioned a map for the entire game. And as soon as Ooh. it's done, I'm just gonna put it everywhere online because it's really interesting to see how it all came together. Nice. Okay. Very cool. Um, once you have all that, do share links for that. The, I will. Okay. The um, I think we've kind of gone through everything that I had in my notes. Um, we've mentioned the Kickstarter. I think we mentioned the dates. Do you have any idea when you expect? To have it delivered to backers? I know that's extremely hard to predict these days, even more so. So I'm going to put a one-year delivery okay. on the campaign. I think I think that's the most that is still reasonable towards backers. I, I truly hope it's going to be less than that. Let me rephrase. If this was 2018, mm-hmm. I would put four months delivery. Okay, and wow. I will feel safe about it. Okay. Because... The art is done. We've gone through multiple iterations of prototypes. Um, we have the quote from the uh, printer. We have the quote from the fulfillment center. All the pieces are in place. This is not 2018, sadly. Right, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to uh, put one ear on it. I truly hope I can deliver it beforehand. And I hope that while people wait, they're going to have fun playing the online versions, Yep. which are not even close to the physical product, nothing replaces a physical board game, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Just the feeling of holding the pieces and the cards. Um, yep. But I hope it's a pale substitute until I can deliver this as quickly as possible. Okay. Well, it sounds very... I, I like how you described it. It would be four months if this was 2018 because that, that right there tells a lot. And we, everybody knows the rest is to- totally out of everybody's control. Yeah. And... So- you know, my 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 uh, my agent for the printer started sending me emails about how things are speeding up again and how uh, container prices are going down. Hmm. And here we are again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really difficult to know. In particular, I really hope to get at least the U.S. printing done in the U.S. Okay. Um, I've actually spoken to a U.S. printer that uh, can take on a project of this scope. Uh, it's really going to depend on the success of the Kickstarter. If we have mm-hmm. enough backers from the U.S., I hope to print in the U.S. 
and that's going to make fulfillment for the U.S. much easier, mm-hmm. and it's going to make it much more sustainable than printing abroad and shipping right. it Around across the, world, the ocean, yep. which is one of the most polluting vehicles ever invented by man. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then shipping everything, and then shipping half the stuff back out again from here, potentially, right? Or do you... Well, I guess the, the logistics is way more complicated than we necessarily want to get into this. Yes. In this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm actually interviewing. Uh, so tomorrow I am um, I'm going to run an interview about exactly that. Okay. As soon as it's done, I'm going to put it on my YouTube channel. It's going to be a whole interview about logistics and fulfillment and printing and shipping. So if you want to learn on how board games are being done, I think by the time this podcast is online, that episode should be on my YouTube channel. Okay, cool. Well, so make sure to give us the, the link to the YouTube channel and the link for the Tabletopia and what else? Yeah, I think the and most important thing... Sorry? And your mailing list? Yeah, that? I think the most important thing is that March 1st, the campaign launches and the way Kickstarter works, I need as many players as I can on day one. That's mm-hmm. how the field works. So if this sounds interesting to to you and to people in the audience, um, just go either to my mailing list or to Kickstarter itself and subscribe. And yep. that way, on the day the campaign launches, you're going to get the email and you can make your decision. And again, play the game. Don't make a blind purchase. I, 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 I'm, I'm reaching the campaign with a mature game so you can try it and make mm-hmm. a responsible decision on how you want to spend your money. Yep. And Tabletopia is there, and it has instructions on how to play, how to navigate the UI, and all that. So, so I mean, people people are able to look at it today. And if you try it and you like it, if you have any feedback, share the feedback. You know, yeah, now by all means, do that. we have a board game geek page, which I'm going to send to you as well. Okay. Um, we have a Discord channel, and we're collecting player feedback all the time. If you go to our change log, you're going to see that whenever someone gave an advice that got into the game they get their uh, their credit. You are so you a software engineer. You have a change log. <laughs> we have a change log, yes. I am a software engineer. I have a change log. Uh, we're at version 0.722 um, for the okay. game. And every change that came from player feedback, the contributor is documented. Whoever wow, okay. committed the change is in the change log. That's funny. That's cool. Okay, well, thank you very much for, for coming and telling us about the game World Breakers. Uh, it really does sound super cool. I'm looking forward to, to see more about it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'll repeat it one last time. March 1st, come March to the 1st. Kickstarter. Make sure to pledge. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractalude on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.